We are continuing our series, Rediscover Church. And as I have been mentioning each week, the big idea behind uh, this series is for, for us to discover for the first time or rediscover church and the power and the joy and the responsibility of being a part of it. And so um, uh, last week uh, was a challenging message. This week, I kind of feel like I'm being thrown into the fire because we're going to be talking about church discipline. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together here this morning, and thank you, Lord, um, for your word to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would indeed speak through me, that I would speak only that which your word says, um, that I might help make it clear uh, the way that I ought. And Lord, that you would take these truths um, and just penetrate our hearts with it, that we might be the better for it, that your church might be the better for it, and that your purposes in this earth might be brought about because we have gathered here today, today to worship you, to hear from you, and to be transformed by you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John MacArthur uh, said once that church discipline is the key to the purity of the church, which in turn enables us to reach the world. Now think about that for a moment. Church discipline is the key to the purity of the church which in turn then enables us to reach the word world. I, I don't know if you've ever put those two things together, the purity of the church and the mission of the church. The problem is, is the church seems to have forgotten that. It seems to have forgotten this truth and it's had a devastating effect upon the church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, there is no doubt at all that this doctrine is grievously neglected. If I were asked to explain why it is that things are as they are in the church, if I were asked to explain why statistics show dwindling numbers, the lack of power and the lack of influence upon men and women, if I were asked to explain why it is that the church is in such parlous condition, I should have to say that the ultimate cause is the failure to exercise discipline. That's quite a statement. But you see, a church is only as powerful as it is holy. Too many, too many church attenders hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Jesus didn't die just so that we could go to heaven. He died to make us holy. Scripture makes it clear that God wants us to be like him. Church discipline is largely misunderstood and ignored in the church today. A few churches practice it. Fewer still practice it well. Yet it is an integral part to our discipleship. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this too, but, but discipline is a cognate of the word disciple and discipleship. 
The exercise of church discipline is one way that the church makes disciples. Webster's Dictionary defines discipline as training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. It's not a bad definition. But the reality is is that discipline is rarely, if ever, a pleasurable experience. I mean, even for an athlete on the field to be disciplined, to do, I mean, it's hard. There are times you want to give up. I don't want to hear what that coach has to say. I don't want to have to go through those drills anymore. But if we submit to it, in time, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Parents understand this. Parents discipline their kids because they love them and they want the best for them. In fact, Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And the same is true of our heavenly father. He demonstrates his love for us in his corrective discipline of us. In Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So you might say that church discipline is a form of tough love, the kind of love that God has for us. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. The scripture this morning, um, I'm going to require you to open up your Bibles and use them rather than put it up on screen. Romans chapter 12, if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's that's all right, just listen attentively. Starting in verse 5, the writer says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Unfortunately for for some people in church, maybe even many people in the church, um, discipline is not seen as a good thing. Church discipline, anyway, is not seen as a good thing. They, they feel that it's unloving, it's judgmental, uh, controlling, or even legalistic. And of course, authority can be misused. 
and it has been misused. But the truth is, church discipline is rarely taught and exercised within the church. So most Christians have never seen it in action or seen it in action well. I, um, you know, I've, I've been walking with Jesus for many years now, so I've seen a lot. It's kind of like that farmer's commercial, you know? Uh, I, I've seen a lot. And I am familiar with one church um, who refused to confront an individual who was committing adultery and um, they allowed him to continue to attend services, to participate in the Lord's Supper, and even to sing in the choir. The sad thing was, was that the man's wife was the church secretary. So they had an employee of the church whose husband was committing adultery, and they didn't do anything about it. They just let her suffer through that. And when he was asked why they did not um, exercise church discipline, his response was simply this. It's, it, it felt too harsh. And our position is that we want to just love people back to God. Do you know what he was really saying? He was really saying that he is wiser than God, that he's more loving than God. He, he substituted, he substituted for God's word some sentimental hogwash because that is not what scripture tells us we ought to do. And it left a trail of destruction in that church. It, it was, became divisive within that church. And a number of years ago, in another location, I had a pastor of a well-known church, a, a fairly large church, come up to me and ask me for advice about a situation he was in the midst of. He had a couple in his church that came to him, and they asked him if he would perform the wedding ceremony for them. The only problem was is that they were already married to different people. And he came to me and he asked me, what should I do? I couldn't believe my ears. I, I couldn't believe that he was asking me. And I was probably 30 years his junior. But God gave me incredible boldness in the moment. Uh, I'll never, you know, forget it. I told him in no uncertain terms that he needed to confront them in their sin. He needed to tell them they needed to repent. And I'll never forget what he, what he told me as soon as I told him that. He said, if I do that, I'll lose half my congregation. You know, you know what he was really saying and valuing, right? He, he was more concerned about keeping his job and looking successful than doing the right thing. He didn't love these people. He didn't love their families. He didn't love his own church. And I would argue he didn't love Jesus. How can you? How can you say you, you, you love Jesus? The Bible says you can't say you love God if you don't love your brother. 
and, and to allow people to, to make decisions that are not only sinful against the Lord, but harmful to other people, spouses, children, family members. It's, it's just pure selfishness. He cared more about himself. I, 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 I still get hot when I think about it. So what is church discipline? And why should we practice it? Well, I, I kind of define church discipline as the practice of lovingly correcting those in the church who sin grievously by bringing their sin to their attention and urging them to repent of it. And, this is important, to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. I'll talk about that in a minute. And the reason why is so that they can be forgiven and brought, be brought back into right relationship with God and others in the church. Uh, Jeremy Kimball, who some of you gentlemen may remember from our men's retreat um, a couple years ago at Scioto Hills, um, he's at uh, Cedarville University. He said this in the Lexham survey of theology. He said, church discipline is divine authority delegated to the church by Jesus Christ to maintain order through the correction of persistently sinning church members for the good of those caught in sin for the purity of the church, and for the glory of God. Jonathan Lehman, in the book that we're reading, Rediscover Church, said this, that in broad terms, church discipline is one part of the discipleship process, the part where we correct sin and point the disciple towards the better path. To be discipled is, among other things, to be disciplined, and a Christian is disciplined through instruction and correction. As in a math class where the teacher teaches the lesson and then corrects the student's errors. It is for this reason that there is a centuries-old practice of referring both to the formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline helps to form the disciple through instruction. Corrective discipline helps to correct the disciple through correcting sin. But then he says, in more specific terms, in formal terms, church discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. Um, and, I, and I'm gonna talk about if and when that ought to occur. That last part only occurs if a person fails to repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, which simply means that they demonstrate that their repentance is genuine, that it's real. I mean, any parent knows that, you know, when they have their kids say, I'm sorry. You know, there's a big difference between saying I'm sorry and truly being remorseful over what you have done. So why do we exercise church discipline? I, I think I've already made a case for why we ought to do it, but I want to be more specific, and I want to take us to Scripture this morning. So please open your Bibles to Matthew 18. And um, I'm probably going to say this a few times this morning, but... Um, this isn't the only passage in the New Testament that talks about church discipline, but it's an important one. 
Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus said, if you're, keep in mind, he's speaking to his disciples, the apostles. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You guys are pretty familiar with that last verse, aren't you? We love to quote that verse. But do you see the context in which this verse exists? It's church discipline. What Jesus is basically saying is that when you come together and you make a judgment about someone's sin and you pronounce that judgment, remember, I have given you the keys of the kingdom. He talked about that in Matthew 16. Now you're exercising this authority. And he says, and when you do, just know that whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, and then he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, Again, with, with church discipline in mind, he says, there I am with you lending approval to that decision. You have my authority, is what Jesus is saying. Now, this is the quintessential passage in the New Testament on church discipline. Um, it's important to understand, though, that as helpful as this passage is, it's not the only one. So sometimes, you know, we have to remember life is messy, right? Things don't always follow, you know, one step, two step, three, you know, you just follow it very clear. And there are other passages of scripture that would circumvent some of these steps. We'll, we'll see that in just a moment. But this is an important passage of scripture. And we should note from the onset that Jesus doesn't have just any sin in mind. He doesn't, he, you know, you know, your, your, your neighbor, you know, cusses, says a bad word, gossips about somebody else. This is not saying that we are to act like the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're not the spiritual police looking for any sin that somebody commits so that we can hit them over the head with a baseball bat or a two by four. It's not what he's talking about. Notice he says that, that if someone sins against you. So this is not just any sin. It's just not a sin that's committed that's out there. It's a sin that he says was committed against you. So it takes on a different flavor. Jesus doesn't tell us what he had in mind when he said this. Only enough that it's serious enough that it needs to be addressed. So Jesus then lays out a four-step process of discipline designed to help the sinning Christian and to restore their relationship. And I think it's also 
informative for us to understand. He's talking to the future elders of the church. He's talking to his disciples. And what's he say? Step one is, go to them by yourself. Go to them and tell them their fault. You see, if someone sins against you in some grievous way, you don't stone them. Although I will be the first to admit, I've been tempted, you know? I mean, sometimes I wish Jesus said, you know, if your brother sins against you, stone them. There are some people in my life that I almost wish that that was the case. God forgive me. (laughs) You don't seek to retaliate. You don't cuss them out. You don't slander them. You don't gossip. And you don't go to the elders. Jesus says, you go to them. If they've sinned against you, you go to them alone. It's one, this, see, this is, when you start adding all these things in, you can see it. This is one of the responsibilities of being a member of the church. You have an obligation to help oversee your brother and your sister's walk in Christ. That's part of the commitment that you make. Many people aren't willing to make that commitment. But you have an obligation to help oversee their walk with Christ in the church, just as others have an obligation to oversee your walk with Christ. So what does Jesus say? He says, well, if he listens, yay, you've won your brother. He's come to his senses, and that's the end of it. You get to move on. Relationship healed, restored, reconciliation. It's a wonderful thing. But then he says, but if he doesn't, you go to step two. He says, take one or two others along with you. Now, he's not talking about pulling a couple of people off of the street. Hey, would you come with me and kind of back me up in case this guy gets you know, ugly, starts throwing punches or whatever? No, that's not what he's talking about. Because he has not listened to you, you bring one or two others so that what? Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That means these are two people, one or two people who are also in the know. They've also seen this. Perhaps they too have been sinned against. And this, of course, is in keeping with the Old Testament law because you weren't supposed to accept an accusation against somebody without two or three witnesses. You, you, you know, it's, it's just too easy to accuse somebody of something. Even today, right? All you have to do is accuse somebody of something and you're judged in the court of public opinion. And in the Old Testament, God took this seriously and understood this could be misused, so you better have two or three witnesses who can establish the facts of this. And at this point, too, you're also trying to keep the circle as close, as small as possible. There's, there's no need to broadcast this far and wide if you can handle it privately, either in that step one or here in step two. And of course, the hope is that he will repent. And again, if he listens and he repents, again, praise God. It, it took an extra step, but hey, he responded. And we ought to rejoice. You've won your brother. But Jesus says, if he doesn't, You then go to step three. You tell the church. Now, 
before there can be any church-wide communication, um, the elders would certainly need to be informed. They, they would certainly be involved in the process. After all, they're the spiritual leaders of the church. They're the ones that are going to be most um, uh, or, or best uh, prepared and able to discern whether or not this thing needs to be elevated to the next step and whether or not it requires telling it to the church. But notice if he refuses well, even before that, let's say the elders are involved and the elders go to that person and that person responds positively and repents. You don't have to go before the church, okay? Oftentimes, though, by the time you get to that step, it does go to the church. And, and, and the reason why it goes to the entire church is because the goal here is to involve the entire church in the process that they would then be praying fervently for this individual, that they would also bring their influence to bear upon the individual so as the collective positive pressure of the body would be brought to bear upon them. The hope would be as they would begin to realize what they're about to lose. And they're, they're about to lose a lot. If, if they have been a part of the church, especially uh, for any length of time, they have developed relationships within the church, meaningful relationships, um, friendships, family members. Uh, maybe they're serving in some capacity. Maybe they have been leading a particular ministry. Not sure exactly what, but really, for, for those of you who have been a part of new life for any length of time, you realize this is family. And to walk away from that, that's not an easy thing to do. Even if you say, well, I'm going to go find a family somewhere else. You know how hard it is just to visit another church but to leave behind family and friends and, and try to start anew in the hopes that you can continue to hide your sin. It's a difficult thing to do. And so the hope here is that he will see the error of his ways and, and that after multiple phone calls, maybe lunch gatherings, breakfast gatherings, this person comes to see the error of his ways and, and he repents of his sin. That is what you hope for. But if he doesn't listen, even to the church, Jesus says you go to step four. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now you have to remember, Jesus was speaking to a bunch of Jews Gentiles were not high on their list of friends. They, they, they were, no, 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 not a Gentile. And a tax collector, even worse, because you were a traitor. You were a traitor because you're working for the occupying force of Rome in your homeland, taking money from your people to support a foreign power. And he says, you're to let them be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. The NIV um, says that um, you are to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And what does that mean? It's, well, it, just, it means that we're not to regard them as a brother in Christ. 
Why? Because he's not acting like one. He's not behaving like one. He's not acting as if Jesus was truly his Lord and his God. Colin Hansen in Rediscover Church said, church discipline at this stage is the flip side to church membership. Remember from the last chapter, membership involves affirming a profession of faith. Discipline in its final stage means removing that affirmation because of a sin that is one, unrepented, two, verifiable, and three, significant. A church isn't declaring with all certainty that someone is a non-Christian when it removes him or her from membership. Instead, a church is saying, we are no longer willing to publicly affirm your profession of faith. You're acting like an unbeliever. Now, sometimes it's sufficient to simply remove the person um, from the membership role and to prohibit him from partaking of the Lord's Supper. Although you can probably see how that could get a little messy too. Sometimes though, it is necessary to bar him from participating in the services and the functions of the church. And I think if you think about that, you can, you can see why. Um, especially where there's serious sin against another member of the body, how difficult it would be to have the offending party and the offended party in the same congregation without there having been repentance and reconciliation. In some cases, the offense may be so grievous that it merits immediate excommunication. If you want, you don't have to, but if you want, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The apostle Paul writes, it is actually, he's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. It's pretty bad. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. That, that phrase, and you are proud, it just, it's like, I, how does that, how could they be proud? And the only thing about it was like that pastor who basically said, we're just gonna love them into the kingdom. Maybe they had that idea. Maybe they thought they were being super spiritual. And we're, just, we're, we're allowing him because we're just gonna love him in the kingdom. I don't know. But he says to him, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Then down in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slandered, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. 
What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So much for judge not lest ye be judged. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is heavy. This is hard. And even now, even as I read that, I bet you some of you are thinking, oh, it seems harsh. It is. But that's how putrid our sin is. That's how wicked, how evil, how damning our sin is, how destructive and dangerous it is to the body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Keep in mind that even when a person is put out of the church, we don't cease to pray for them, that God would bring them to repentance. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there are a lot of other passages that talk about church discipline. Time will not permit me to explore them further. So let me just bullet point a, a few other reasons why we ought to exercise church discipline. In addition to the fact that that it's biblical, that we're commanded to do it, we do it because it's the right and loving thing to do. And I've personally seen how church discipline um, has worked in all the various stages of it, but sadly, I've also seen church discipline not bring about the result that you want, but rather the person gets hardened in their sin. We're not in control of how someone responds to church discipline, but that should never keep us from obeying Christ and following God's word. You don't allow the fear of what they may or may not do keep you from doing the right thing. You know that a church truly loves its members and the lost around them when they exercise church discipline. Discipline is a way of showing that you care and that it's, it's the right thing to do no matter what the other person, the, how, how that person responds. I mean, just, I mean, how many, you guys, most of you are parents. You understand this. It's not easy disciplining your kids. We, we, we want our kids to love us and say all manner of nice things about us. We do. And, but, but disciplining them often results in outbursts of anger, the silent treatment, or accusations like, you don't love me. And that hurts. When you know in your heart of hearts you would die for that child. And yet they can be so mean and ugly. Disrespectful even. Sometimes we're, we're, we will cow down because we're afraid maybe they'll run away. Maybe they'll harm themselves. And sometimes as a parent, you can feel like you've been put in a straitjacket. But we can't succumb to the temptation to hold back our loving discipline them, not if we truly love them. Listen, again, life is messy. Love is hard. Discipline is tough love. 
We need to do the right thing and love people more than we love the absence of conflict. I, I, I don't like conflict. I don't relish it. I don't... I have to fight to not avoid it because that's how unpleasurable it is. But church discipline is the right and loving thing to do and not just for the person who sinned but for the injured party if there is in fact an injured party. And it's the right and loving thing to do for the church and for the larger community that we're trying to reach. Another reason why we ought to implement church discipline related to that is to keep our promise to oversee our commitments to Christ and one another in the local church. You know, church discipline shouldn't happen only when things get really bad. In fact, church discipline ought to be happening all the time. You go, whoa, I don't know if I want to be a part of that church if it's happening all the time. Well, think about it. If we truly love one another and are fulfilling our part of overseeing each other's walk with Christ, then we will be speaking the truth in love with one another. And I believe that if we kept our promise to oversee our commitments to Christ and to one another in steps one and two, you would rarely get to steps three and four. We can't afford to be afraid, detached, or uninvolved. We have to have the courage to go to those who have sinned grievously and perhaps against us and point out their fault, all the while assuming the best about them. Now, that's hard. It's very hard. Don't assume that they will be angry, upset, or unwilling to listen. They may be oblivious to their sin, They may be oblivious to the hurt that they caused or to the level of hurt that they caused. Love them enough to help them. Now, this, of course, requires maturity, doesn't it? It also requires a willingness on your part to be vulnerable yourself because you know you have faults and you have sinned. Scripture says we're to pull the log out of our own eye before we can see to pull the speck out of our brother's eye or our sister's eye. We need to go to people with a deep sense of humility that there but the grace of God go I. Brother, I'm a fellow sinner. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I don't know where I'd be. Another reason why we exercise church discipline is to protect the flock. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. Many times, the sin being dealt with impacts one or more people in the church. Sins like pedophilia, adultery, abuse, fraud, and and many other things need to be dealt with openly and publicly. If you get through stages one, two, and three, you, and you're going before the it has to be done. If you've been watching the news at all, you understand that the world is very attuned to the failures of the church, to the hypocrisy in the church, to the moral failures of the preachers in the pulpits. And they're very quick to point out those problems And the fact that the church has so often swept things under the rug 
is problematic. And we can't afford to do that. Shepherds have the responsibility to protect the sheep, not only from the individuals who have sinned, but from others who might be tempted to sin in such a way in the future. There's something about exercising church discipline and allowing people to see, wow, that church takes sin seriously. It might put the fear of God in them. I had one person in the church I was in before I came up here that when we exercised church discipline on a member, he basically wrote in and said, you know, those people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And he left the church, and that was the last thing we heard. And I came away feeling like I think we touched a nerve. I think something in this man's life, when he saw what was happening here, I, I think there may have been something going on in his life, and he realized he might be next on the list. You don't sweep it under the rug. By addressing sin in the camp and dealing with it biblically, the church is assured that its leaders take sin seriously and that they are serious about protecting the sheep. Related to this, another reason for church discipline is that it fosters holiness in the church. It should cause people to fear sinning against God, not because of what we might be able to do with them, putting them out of the church or whatever, but because it is a picture of what will happen one day if they are unrepentant and they stand before God. They will be put out from his presence, from heaven. And we don't want that for them. In church discipline, we see sin in light of the holiness of God. It becomes clear to us that we are to be holy and blameless before him. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 27, that, that Jesus, his, his goal is to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, uh, 1, Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, it goes back to what I said earlier. Jesus didn't die just so that we could go to heaven. He died to make us holy. And the last reason that I'll share with you, it's not the only the last, last reason, but it's the last one I'm going to share with you, and that is to maintain a faithful witness. It's related to everything I've already said. The world is watching, and we owe it to the people that we're trying to reach to demonstrate that though we are not a perfect people, we are a redeemed people people who strive to live holy and pleasing lives to God. We must show them that we take sin seriously and that it is possible, hear me now, it is possible to live the victorious Christian life. We don't have to wallow in our sin. 
We need to take advantage of our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in our weaknesses. We need to pray for one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, help one another. Let's not give the world ammunition to shoot us with. Let's keep short accounts with sin and when necessary, deal with serious sin seriously. I trust that what we've learned today, though not exhaustive, has helped us to understand that loving church discipline is a necessary ingredient for our discipleship in the mission of God. I think MacArthur was right. Church discipline is the key to the purity of the church, which in turn will enable us to reach the world. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for our time together here this morning. I thank you for your word to us. And Lord, in many ways, it's, it's a heavy word, but it's a helpful word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it in our lives and in the life of this church, that we might be all that you have called us to be, that we would not be like children or teenagers that run from discipline, but that we would welcome it because it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Lord, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you and we want to enjoy all that you have for us. Use us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.